Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I am the Chief Diversity Officer here at the AAVMC. So today we are talking about women leaders in higher education. Now, nationally, women make up nearly half of all deans at colleges and universities in the United States. Um, So all deans in any discipline, the total number, women make up about, you know, just under 50%. So almost half. Now, in medical schools, only about 21% of the deanships are held by women. Um, So at that level, though, we're doing a bit better in vet med among our 33 institutions um, here in the U.S. Um, About 12 of our deans currently um, identify as women, and two of them happen to be women of color. Now, over the years, we have also seen a number, a few deans kind of move up Um, the uh, academic ladder to become provost or chancellor um, or president or or, uh, positions in that kind of C-suite level. Um, But it doesn't seem to happen that often for women in vet med. Um, And surely there may be lots of um, reasons for that, including maybe they were just really, really happy being deans and don't want to move to that level. Um, But we have had two um, women, at least during my terms of service um, here at the association, there have been about two women um, dean, uh, former dean at Tufts, uh, Dr. Debbie Kochiver, and the current dean and AABMC president, Dr. Ruby Perry at Tuskegee University, both have served um, in interim positions at either like the provost or president's level. Um, so, you know, certainly we're seeing some of what we're going to talk about today, but the numbers in terms of kind of moving up uh, into that C-suite kind of leadership position for women in vet med tends to still be lagging behind. Now, today, um, my guest has just published a book on women in academic leadership and what their journeys teach us about the women, um, the plight of women in academia. My guest today is Dr. Lisa Takami, author of Women in the Higher Education C-Suite, Diverse Executive Profiles. Hello, Lisa. How are you? Lisa, I am so good. Thank you so much for having me as a guest on your wonderful podcast. I am delighted to be with you and really not only uh, talk about the book, but really learn more about some of the uh, data points that you are touching on with regard to women in veterinary medicine. So thank you so much for framing our conversation within that important context. Sure, sure. Well, thank you so much. You have such a wonderful name, right? The the Lisas are here for today's show. So uh, why don't we get into it? Lisa, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and and kind of how you ended up doing this work? Sure. So I have been in higher education 
administration for about 15 years. I currently serve as the special project director at NOCE, which is the non-credit standalone campus of the North Orange County Community College District in Orange County, California. Uh, You know that we became acquainted through our long-term mutual involvement with the National Conference on Race and Ethnicity in Higher Education. I have been writing for a Wiley journal, Wiley owned journal, Women in Higher Education since 2014. And I got the idea during the pandemic, uh, for reasons I'll discuss a little later, that it was high time that a book was written on diverse women uh, who have ascended to the C-suite across many different kinds of institutions in higher education. I appreciated the data that you raised. If we look at women in the higher education C-suite, women uh, across the board are doing better than they are in Fortune 500 companies by quite a lot. We want to be sensitive to disaggregating women, to look at women of color and other marginalized groups that we'll talk about a little bit later. But if we compare the public sector, higher education public sector, to Fortune 500, Companies, we see that about 30% of university uh, college and presidents were women as compared, and 36% uh, in California, by the way. Uh, And the figure for Fortune 500 companies is quite a bit lower at only 8%. So the barriers to entry, the opportunities for professional development, mentorship, um, and other topics that we'll touch on uh, really do make this quite an attractive uh, route for women. Uh, But I think it's important that we look at the um, sort of disaggregate higher education to areas such as veterinary medicine and see what can be done and what, and now perhaps identify some of the barriers uh, to women making it to the C-suite in that sector. Lisa, I actually can't hear you. Here I go. (laughs) So um, thank you so much, Lisa, for um, that bit of background. I also just wanted to make a note that I left off one woman um, on the kind of ascension storyline, and mm-hmm. that would be Dr. Lisa Freeman. She used to be um, some quite some time ago the dean, um, associate dean of research at Kansas State University, but she has been president at um, Northern Illinois University for a number of years. So there is one, and she actually... Um, is not interim. <laughs> She's been there right. for a while. So. <laughs> so we got one. We got one. So, so Lisa, tell us a little bit about the motivation for writing this. Yes. Absolutely. Well, I really became interested in interviewing women higher ed leaders through my uh, dissertation research on chief diversity officers, as a matter of fact. And I found that I was a good interviewer and that women of color really opened up to me as a white ally in terms of the personal challenges and triumphs that they had faced. And I took that trust very seriously. And I member checked with two black women who are close friends and colleagues. And and, and I asked them, I said, you know what, think that they would trust in me in that way. And they identified two reasons that I thought were important. Number one, because I'm not a member of their community. There's a certain level of safety and confiding to someone who's an out member. And secondarily, that they wanted to make the path for those who come after them easier than it was for them. And I think that nugget 
of interest really stood 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 with me after stuck with me after my dissertation because I had interviewed men and women for the doctoral research. But as a woman leader myself, I was really interested to dig into that a little bit further. Then during the pandemic, I was recruited for a C-suite role myself. So I was headhunted uh, from a woman in from a firm in Chicago for a C-suite role here in California that was stepping out of my comfort zone. I had a very comfortable middle management role at a California community college. And I went into a private sector apprenticeship training institute where I was responsible for operationalizing the strategic plan for 1500 apprentices uh, in one of the trades. And Mm -hmm. it was tough. There were just a lot of things that I could not see from the outside. There were also some warning signs that I didn't pay attention to, like the fact that there were a 26-member board with only one woman, and that had been the case for 30 years, right? But I didn't really know the extent of the white male patriarchy, really, that Mm -hmm. just was embedded in that organization until I got in there. And so a few months in, I realized I was in trouble and that I had moved way outside of my values, my DEIA values, and that I found myself in a hostile work environment and I had to, I had to pivot. I had to make a difficult decision that this was not going to be a good fit and that I was going to need to find another role, which I, I ultimately did. In that process, I felt that there were stories to be told, and I researched the market and found that a a book of this kind really surprisingly hadn't been written, and there seemed to be a gap in the literature, and you see the pictures of some of the women behind me, Dr. Mildred Garcia, Dr. Catrice Albert, Dr. Uh, Javon Adams-Gaston. There are so many women with such compelling, important stories to be told that we all can resonate with. So it was really a combination of factors that motivated me to write the book. Great. So so what did you learn? Uh, (laughs) I learned so, so many things. I've been asked this before. There's so many learnings, it's sometimes hard to focus in on them, but I'll highlight a few about these women. So I interviewed 11 women who are either CEOs or chief diversity officers, uh, public and private institutions, HBCU, a tribal college. One thing that I learned about these women is they are resilient. These are resilient women. These are women who have the ability to compartmentalize their own feelings in a moment of crisis or a moment of need in order to be present for those that that they lead, to hold their hands. I'm reminded of Dr. Garcia's experience leading uh, through 9-11. I'm reminded of Dr. Sakaki's experience of leading through the Santa Rosa fires when she lost her own home and ran with her husband through the flames. I'm reminded of all of the presidents and leaders who led through the uncertainty of COVID-19, the racial reckoning. So they have the ability to stay present, to stay focused, and bring bring their constituents uh, together through crisis, through trauma, and toward um, the the attainment of common goals and students' highest aspirations. So that was certainly one thing. Um, they take students or their own circumstances of having been underserved uh, very seriously. 
Uh, I think about Dr. Albert, who I've known probably about as long as you and I've known each other a bit longer. We met at Encore in New Orleans in 2015. And when I circled back to interview her for the book, she had, had started a very successful consulting career. And she made the decision to not only continue her consulting, but to go back to the chief diversity role at what she calls a post-Brianna Taylor University of Kentucky, USA. I could not say it better myself. And Dr. Albert is one whose articulation and her whose poise and poignancy around these subjects um, is really something to behold. So I think their commitment to reversing the harm of systemic racism and exclusion to work to establish structures, policies, campus climate and culture that as Dr. Becky Pettit at UC San Diego would say, celebrates the brilliance of students' potential. These leaders are incredible listeners. They are able to search for meaning and listening to not only stakeholders' words, but the meaning beneath those words. A number of them are trained psychologists, not all. They all have high uh, emotional intelligence and work consistently to create a culture of respect inclusion, and taking climate checks by simply checking in with those that they lead. They are outstanding team builders, and they seek to hire teams with skills they don't possess. Uh, Dr. Andra Honus, who is now the president and superintendent at the Santa Barbara Community College District, talks about president proofing the college, that she always has people in place so that she doesn't need to be there. Having come through an organization that lost its leader very suddenly and was really set back, Dr. Dina Maloney, retired superintendent and president of El Camino College in California, talks about leading from where you are, building the leadership capacity across the institution. So those are just a few of the things that I've learned. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot, right? It's a lot. It's a lot. So I just want to spend a moment, though, on that first kind of lesson that you were talking about, about the resilience piece yes. and um, the compartmentalizing piece, because it resonated so strongly with okay. me um, in terms of, you know, some of the, the work that, that we're doing in vet med around kind of well-being and kind of how we talk about things. And, you know, and I think that a lot of um, disciplines over, certainly over these last five years and through the pandemic, um, and preceding it, um, you know, have really kind of talked a lot about resilience and how do we like, oh, maybe we should screen for resilience in terms of like admissions for students and kind of thinking long term. And I'm always <laughs> the provocateur where I'm like, yeah, folks with marginalized identities do not need to prove anything to you about resilience. The fact that they are here is their demonstration. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so miss me with all of this additional you know, kind of assessment piece. So, so one that res- really resonated with me, but the other piece that in terms of the compartmentalization, and I think that, I mean, I don't know when we don't do this both as, as women and as folks with other, you know, potentially marginalized identities where, I mean, there's always something happening. <laughs> 
in the world, like the dumpster fire continues to float on by, right? Um, but I mean, I just kind of even remember my own experience as a chief diversity officer um, during the summer of 2020 and just how my personal feelings and kind of working and trying to lead during that period, they just went in a box. Yeah. You know, they just went in a box. They The box got open briefly for an hour of therapy <laughs> during the week. Uh-huh. And then, you know, I kind of duct taped it back together. <laughs> right. Maybe put a piece of duct tape over the hole in the side where... <laughs> You know, emotionally, I just kind of felt like I was almost leaking out, right? And I mean, I think that that we don't appreciate how much folks with marginalized identities and 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 for the purposes of today's discussion, women and women of color have to have a box that's duct taped together <laughs> to, to just kind of move through the world. Otherwise, like we'd be in shambles all the time, right? But I think they're, you know, these women also speak to their own humanity, right? Yeah. Uh, when I spoke with Dr. Becky Pettit through that time, which it was brutal for her because she was also getting strong criticism from the Black students at UC San Diego that she wasn't doing enough as she was working to change the stereotype around the monolith of the Asian student community and needing to point out to all students that faculty and staff also needed their own realms of support. These are women who speak very frankly about the scars associated. You know, there there are the emotional the emotional collateral and wounds. Dr. Catrice Albert has written a book on racial battle fatigue, and she is aware of the need for better self-care at the same time that she sometimes finds, and she, you know, she says in the book, up at one o'clock in the morning because she feels that she needs to confront the stereotype of Black women or Black people not being on time. I mean, things that she she knows she's working through. So it's not as if these women are superhuman. They are uber human. And what I would say is they're, they're, they're human in their humanness, right? And I think one of their strengths is not making it seem like it's all okay. Rather speaking very forthrightly, uh, you know, candidly to me as a white woman and, and acknowledging and naming uh, the high emotional toll associated and the strategies for survival. So many of them spoke about strong partners, right? That they could go home at night and cry in their partner's arms, cry in the shower, cry in their beds, do what they needed to do to take care of themselves so that they could be present for those they lead. Not all of us are wired to do that. I'm not sure that I am. You know, I think my my skills of compartmentalizing have grown as my leadership skills have grown, but I'm not sure I'm wired that way, especially under those circumstances with those layers of marginalization um, on top of, let's say, the the pandemic, the crisis of the pandemic and the uncertainty of it. Yeah, yeah. 
So, you know, as as I mentioned um, at the top of the show, we're talking about vet med and women now comprise the majority of students and professionals. Right. Um, And so among the students, we are at about 82 percent among uh, professionals kind of out in the field. um, You know, I would say we're probably about 60 65% 65% maybe pushing 70 I think I hear. Um and so, you know, leadership is diversifying slowly. Um I would say it's certainly moving a little bit quicker in academia, um, you know, with the deanships and those types of things. But, you know, it's it's not where I want it to be. It's not where I want it to be. Um and even among students those young men who are serving in the student, uh, you know, American Veterinary Medical Association, SAFMA, the student organizations, um, we want them, we need them. Hello, hello. Just, just so everybody's like, not like saying out there saying, Dr. Greenhill said we don't need any men. That's not what I said. <laughs> like, what? I, and I'm not saying that we don't need you in leadership either. We're just saying, yeah. let's create some space, right? Right. So, so, but it always amazes me too when I look at even among the student leaderships, um, disproportionately, I oftentimes see, um, you know, men in leadership still, right? And so, even though 80% of are women. And so, um, you know, I'm always kind of like, it's just an interesting statistical phenomenon <laughs> that I see. Um, so, you know, the, taking all of that into account, what lessons can, can, our students and our professionals really kind of take from this book, recognizing that leadership really does manifest itself in a number of different ways, not just. Oh, well, yeah. I I'd like to highlight, you know, some of the themes that came out in, in considering, because I am a fan of your podcast and I have listened to a number of episodes and I was, I was interested in the statistics around uh, enrollment, you know, in vet med um, today and thinking about that. Um, I think one of the advantages that women in higher ed uh, in general uh, have, and that is even highlighted more so in California, are the opportunities for professional development programs. So all of these women uh, were very intentional about their, their ongoing professional development. I'll give you an example. Dr. Joanne Lee, Chancellor of the University of Nebraska at Omaha, first Asian American woman to have to hold a, an executive leadership position, I think in that whole system. She was a dean of business at Florida International University. She was approached by her then president who told her she needed to look up. And she's originally from Hong Kong. And she said, well, you know, what do you mean? I'm working really hard at my job. I'm doing a good job. He said, I know that. He said, but you need to look up from what you're doing right now and point yourself to the next position you want to attain. Well, that was a revelation for her. And that also, starting in 2000, I think she's 16, a pattern of very intentional professional development programs, Wharton Executive Leadership, Harvard Executive Leadership, uh, American Association of Colleges and Universities, the Millennial uh, Presidents Program, and so on. All of them have that in common. And there are a lot of programs. In California, there's the Assimilar Institute, uh, Assimilar Institute, excuse me. So a number that I interviewed in California had been recommended. So I think that is something that uh, we have in our toolkit that I'm hoping 
uh, maybe something that could be incorporated in the vet med world. Uh, you know, what are those paths? What are the ladders? And if there are, if they aren't there, Lisa, <laughs> then someone needs to create them. Yeah. So that was certainly one thing. Um, all of these women spoke strongly of their mothers, strong mm. mother figures, strong grandmother figures, uh, families, aspirational values. Many of them, if not most of them, are first generation college students themselves whose parents didn't know how to navigate college, but told them and embedded in them the idea that your ticket out of poverty and socioeconomic mobility is college. And the message was, you know, was just repeated and instilled from a very early age. The role of mentors, absolutely critical. Some of them spoke of having had the same mentors. So Dr. Jovan uh, Jovan Adams-Gaston has had two. She didn't name them, but she said an African-American man and an African-American woman who have been with her through the trajectory. Mm. Others spoke of different mentors at different junctures. Some of them spoke very strongly of women. Some of them spoke very strongly of men, including white men who championed them from early on. Um, They also spoke about the differential treatment of women and men. So Dr. Albert was the first to discuss with me the concept of the glass clip. So the scenario where a woman finally ascends to the C-suite only to discover that the resources that have been allocated to her, human capital, budget, is not the same as her male counterparts. And she was able to name my experience. So I didn't have that term when I had gone through that. That's an issue, right? That's an, that's not the experience of all of the women. A Dr. Jane Connolly, who's the president of Cal State Long Beach, she'd been mentored by Robert Gates when she was in Texas. So a variety, but a number of them did mention this. They also have high, I mentioned this earlier, high emotional intelligence, political savvy, the knowledge of the need to collaborate with those that you may not want to collaborate with in order to get the job done, and the ability to self-correct self-reflect, admit mistakes, and apologize when needed. And they all talked about the joy and the exhilaration of being a C-suite leader despite inherent challenges and the joy in seeing, you know, Dr. Albert mentors many, many women. And for her, the joy in seeing those students reach, as she says, their terminal degree, whatever that degree may be. So those are some of the high-level themes. Yeah. So what did you find was the biggest barrier to ascending to the C-suite? Well, I think there's the obvious issues of gender and race. So, I mean, we we really, you know, we've already centered those. In addition to that, I think uh, they talked about very specifically identifying skill gaps that they needed to fill. And this usually came through formal mentoring where uh, they would look at a job description for a presidency and know that they needed to fill in their skills in different areas. Dr. Ubre, who recently retired as the president of Whittier College here in California and had a long career at Disney and other you know, uh, private companies in finance, said every aspiring CEO should take skill, should take 
grant writing, should learn how to write grants, should be take courses in finance. Then Dr. Lee also talked about the need to have a breadth and depth sufficient, as Dr. Maloney would say, to hold the leaders of those divisions of the institution accountable. Mm-hmm. So I think filling in skill gaps is, is a critical one. Dr. Andrahonis also said that those who do not succeed, who crash and burn, who may make it to interim and not permanent, are those who focus on positional power. She mm-hmm. just doesn't work. Yeah. She said yeah. those who thrive in these roles are highly collaborative leaders. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. So Talking about, there's got a book about women. We're talking about women. Where do men fit into the conversation? Yeah. So as I mentioned, it was interesting to find out the number of them who really had men who either tapped them for positions or who otherwise took an interest in their careers. And I appreciated your question about what should male allyship look like? for aspiring women leaders. And I I really thought about this question. I think for those who are willing to be allies, because we can't make the assumption, (laughs) but for those who are willing to be allies, I think like in other areas of DEIA work, owning their male privilege, just, you know, Mm -hmm. having a sense of what that means, listening to and seeking out the experience of their women colleagues, superiors, subordinates, whoever, you know, whatever women they work with, students, how do they walk through this life differently than they do? How do the women in their life walk through their lives differently than they do? In the same way that when I build allies with women of color, that's that's one of the foundational pieces, right? Reading about women's experiences, understanding their lived experiences. I think a willingness to confront the glass syndrome, ensuring if you are in a leadership capacity where you, let's say you're a chancellor and you've got presidents of of different smaller institutions, ensuring that your men and women leaders have equal resources, that they are not only placed in positions of leadership, but they are set up to succeed, Mm. whereas others are not set up to succeed you know, by just the structural differences. And I think that allyship really should include mentoring women and helping women disrupt what I term as generations of social conditioning that inhibit them to self-advocate, to negotiate their worth and value, and to apply for the job. I'm sure you are familiar with the comparative statistics around how many you know provisions of a job description a woman feels she needs to have before she even applies for the job right right, right? About men and mask leaning men are uh, mean, mean, mask leaning folks are like i can do that <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like, i need a degree in that <laughs> yeah. exactly and i came to understand through this the writing of this book speaking to women about negotiation the book has a long appendix of resources mm-hmm. books professional development uh, programs, and so on, men really need to be the type who will encourage women to seek their highest aspirations because some may not see it in themselves. A number of them, uh, Dr. Garcia talked about 
uh, someone early in her career who wrote, inscribed a dictionary for her. And I'm sure you've heard that she was recently named the first Latina to lead the California State University. Absolutely thrilling. She started October 1st. That a, a, a man in her life, I, I think he was a dean, early on in her career said, inscribed a dictionary. It said to Millie, someone who, you know, a woman who will go far. Mm-hmm. And here she's been, you know, she was president of three different campuses, then uh, ask you and now the CSU. Yeah. And so I think women, because they don't have that, that arrogance, I can do that. Right. They benefit from the support of men and women, but they, they benefit from the support of men who see in them perhaps what they can't see in themselves. Yeah. And many of the women in the book spoke of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, just in my own experience, um, there have definitely been some very um, important key male figures that have played such a critical role in my own career. I mean, um, you know, um, I have, I mean, the first time that I worked at AAVMC, um, you know, the the late, great Dr. Lester Crawford, former uh, FDA commissioner, hired me here. And then, you know, I've left and come back a couple of times. They call me the boomerang. (laughs) But you know, you know, even now, Dr. Andrew McCabe, our, our CEO, has just been a wonderful, wonderful mentor, colleague, boss, the whole thing. And, right. and um, yeah, I mean, I am eternally grateful for, for him, for, for, you know, Dr. Crawford, but also Larry Hyder, who actually brought me back the last time. And, uh-huh. you know, I had no intention of coming back. And to your, to your point, I was like, ah, do I really want to come back? Am I qualified to lead, you know, diversity initiative? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I have all of this experience, but mm-hmm. meanwhile, yeah, there's somebody out there who was like, yeah, I can do that. Um, you know, but, but again, there's just always been folks along the way and it means a lot and it makes such a difference when you even to your confidence in terms of that there are people that actually genuinely believe in you. That's right. Right. Encouraging women to apply for the job and then hiring women, choosing a woman who may not have been placed in a role, choosing a woman of color who has not been placed in the particular role. Absolutely critical. So, you know, just to, to, to probe a little bit, um, I, I read a few of the profiles in the book and, and was really taken by two of them in particular, Dr. Um, Albert, and, and she talked about kind of this biggest mistake is that, you know, women are, you know, deemed natural caregivers and like we take care yes. of everyone and we're always kind of just, you know, um, going around, but but really kind of at what point do we prioritize self? And I don't mean the self-care that is like, go take a bubble bath. I support that. (laughs) I support that just just to say, but you know, like how do women even find time for that in these positions? Well, I think uh, as, you know, as, as happens sometimes it's not until they're over the cliff. This is a different cliff, not the glass cliff. But it's only when they've gotten sick or they've realized that they've really pushed themselves too far. Um, several of them talked about being really good at talking to other people about self-care, not only taking care of other people emotionally and otherwise, but talking to others about self-care 
And only realizing belatedly, usually when a trusted friend, spouse, colleague approached them and said, you've got to take care of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. You can't be present for anyone else if you can't be present for yourself institutionally. You're not most, none of us is very good to an organization if we're sick, right? And I think education, women in education, right? Women in education, right? It's like women in healthcare. Yeah. We, it's, it's the undoing. I, I'm really big on this. I've become very big on this. I have a daughter. I know you have a daughter. Yeah. And my daughter's college age. And I think your daughter's maybe around that few yeah. years yeah. older. Yeah. Uh, and I talked to her about this. We've been talking about this since she was about 10. As she saw me balancing work, parenthood, doctoral student, you know, cooking. And, and I'd say, I'm going to yoga, going for a massage. See you later. What are you doing, mom? Engaging in some self-care. Yeah. But that was only after the other, right? Yeah. (laughs) And we, and you know, it's not that men don't burn out or don't sometimes lack those same, um, you know, the same sort of parceling out of time for self-care. What they don't have are is the millennial, <laughs> millennia of, of the, socialization yeah, the socialization of putting the needs of others ahead uh-huh. of the needs of self. In yeah. fact, I would argue it's the opposite. They tend yeah. to put themselves before others, you know, because yeah. they were, and there are problems with that, right? We know with our, right, right. right? you know, with our mass leaning right. folks, you know, there there can be issues with that as well. So these women, I think, by and large, have come, some of them, uh, because you mentioned Dr. Albert, have come to self-care by going to the other side, you know, by by only realizing, boy, if I don't take some time away for myself to uh, make sure I've gone to, like I talked to a number of them, mammograms, you know, (laughs) pap smears, you know, just a physical uh, sufficient sleep. Yeah, I think that leading through the pandemic, it took its toll on all of us. It took its toll on all of us. And these are women who are not only type A, but they care. They care a lot about students who don't have enough to eat, who don't have access to technology, who are waiting for, you know, funds from one or different sources to come through, who don't have transportation. and balancing out taking care of themselves so they can be present for what Dr. Pettit calls, you know, being part of the magic, right? Yeah. Uh, to see the magic happen. It, it's a struggle. I it think, is. I don't think it's easy. I don't think there was one of the bunch who would say that self-care was easy, but I think they would probably all say that they've grown in their ability to do that. Mm-hmm. through the trajectories of their career. It's a great topic. It's an important one. Yeah. yeah. The other um, profile that I read was Dr. Sakaki. Mm-hmm. So, and and what I really appreciated about hers, and, and she was talking about, you know, her experiences with um, discrimination, yep. implicit bias. And she starts off kind of the, the profile talks a bit about implicit bias. And then she talks a little bit about, you know, some very specific experiences where I was like, that was not implicit. <laughs> that was some really, really nasty right. stuff, right? Um, but, you know, what I loved about the profile was um, her explanation of kind of 
talking about learning to be more authentic based on a a conversation that she had with a colleague, right? So so getting back to this idea of like finding allies, finding kind of peer mentors and those types of things. And she's like, hey, I really want to watch you and I admire you. And I'm really kind of want to dig like, you know, what you're, I want to do what you're doing. And that person Uh going, no, no, I want to be more like you. You know, now some of our millennial uh, and Zs on the call may, on the pod may listening may not understand this reference because hashtag old, but you know, it was kind of more like when EF Hutton speaks, they people listen, right? Like they weren't born there. So just millennial young millennials and Z's just, just, you know, okay. Boomer me later, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, there's this, the, you know, her colleague was like, no, you don't speak much. So when you do, we know that it's going to be impactful and it's going to be very helpful. And and you need to lean into that. You don't need to be more like me. You need to be more like you. And I really so loved that story. um, Because again, like, I feel like I'm sharing a lot today during this podcast, but that is a a kind of awakening that I've had in the last like year, 18 months. And there are things Mm -hmm. that I have chosen um to do very intentionally yes because i'm at one i'm at an age where i feel like i just can all right that's the benefit of being older but also with that age and experience you have some social capital in these positions that allow you to be more authentic right and so for me one of the big things was i'm going to use aave um african-american vernacular english for folks that don't know that that um acronym because that is my first language that's the language I talk um, and speak at home with my family my friends um, even some of my colleagues not all of them but some of them Um, but you know when I really started thinking about I'm like no that is a language it's not just a dialect it is a language and guess what you understand what I'm saying right right (laughs) and we're not distinguishing between this proper English stuff right yeah yeah yeah, the code switching. Uh, that's a that was a very important story. So yeah. she talked about Dr. Scott talked about not having other women who look like her to look to as role models. So she had admired this white woman who I think was fairly talkative, and they went out to lunch, and the exchange took place that you mentioned. And I think what came out of that for Dr. Sakaki was a much greater reverence for her Japanese ancestry, where listening is far more valued than speaking. And that she realized she couldn't ever be that person because that was not who she is. I think it was Oprah who said, you got to be yourself because everybody else is taken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of many yeah. Oprah quotes that I love. I thought that was such a a meaningful exchange between these two women who had secretly admired one another. And I love the fact that, you know, what you were saying about AEVE, and I know we've both attended a number of different workshops at Encore that speak exactly to the exhaustion of women of color who are constantly engaged in code switching. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, for for folks that don't know what that is, it is when, you know, basically you have to alter your presentation of of self 
to fit in, right? And oftentimes we see it most in language, but it can be clothing. It can be, I mean, it can be all kinds. There you go, right? Um, all of that. And, you know, I've done certainly a number, we've done a number of shows on the podcast, including, you know, dress codes. And that's one of the reasons I hate them. And, you know, and all of these kinds of things, because they are so much about control and they force the issue of code switching, right? They demand it. And, and so, and it is, it is in a, in a, an exhausting kind of behavior that you're constantly just kind of doing. And so there are, for me anyway, big chunks of life that I've just decided, yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. Like, I'm just not going to do that anymore. And you'll be okay. Right. <laughs> because you want to be okay. You want to feel okay. And you don't want to have to do that caretaking because that's yeah. another form of caretaking. It is another form of caretaking. But also, I mean, when I say you'll be okay, I mean, for those folks around me who are like, oh my goodness, she's not going to be speaking proper English and da, 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 you'll be fine. Like that's right. what in a in a couple of days you'll pick you'll you'll be picking up what I'm putting don't down. Get it. It's gonna be fine. <laughs> <laughs> gonna be fine. <laughs> and don't act like you didn't see it on some TV show. You're gonna be fine. <laughs> like you understand what's going on, right? Yeah. So we've talked about women, we've talked about um men and masculining men. So where do non-binary and trans femmes fit into this? Because you know, we're always on this binary. And, um, you know, the, the, the binary is leaving folks out. So, you know, what does the future for our non-binary and trans femme and even trans mask folks that, um, you know, are really interested in pursuing, you know, these types of positions? Um, I mean, we're really talking about breaking the mold now. Yeah, I think this is an area. Um, you know, I, I'm in conversation with Wiley about a second volume. And I think this is one of the areas uh, where there's just a lot more research that needs yeah. to be done. So one of the participants in my book, Dr. Erica Andrahonis, let's see if I can move out there. She's right in the center. Uh-huh. She's openly lesbian. She talks about her relationship with her partner of, gosh, I think she and Martha have been together at least 30 years. They have a daughter together. Um, I w- I purposely sought out, for example, Dr. Sandra Boham, who is the president of a tribal college. If I write a second volume, I know I'm going to write a second book. I just don't know the exact theme of it yet. I would seek out, probably through referral, uh, non-binary folks. I can tell you I have a close doctoral friend and colleague who is a trans male and um and it was very hard for them. They yeah. left an institution and they have a discrimination lawsuit pending with that institution after just a horrible time at yeah. the director level. And yeah. they are now at um, a higher ed nonprofit or uh, I think they're called, you know, the not affiliate. I think it's a I can't remember the name. They they work sort of between at the intersection of higher ed and high school, a, a higher ed and K-12. Happy. So happy. And I'm so happy that they are happy after seeing what they went through. So I think um, I certainly have uh, spoken with folks at NCOR and other conferences, uh, but I haven't actually interviewed folks um, to see 
what that path has been like, uh, what those barriers have been like. But I can tell you, I think it's an area that needs further exploration. And I would love to be able to elevate the experience of our non-binary colleagues and trans colleagues um, in this area. And I appreciated your asking the question. So I think it's it's an area that really uh, needs filling. It's, it's a research yeah. gap. Yeah, it is a it is a gap, and um, you know, and in, in this current moment, because mm-hmm. like we can't even talk about months anymore. These moments <laughs> because yes. things are changing so often. But right. in this current moment, we already know that these folks are underrepresented in yep. you know in academic leadership in general. Um, it, it's big news and in inside higher ed and the Chronicle right. and all of the the you know trade press. When, um, you know, we see more um, LGBT and queer and trans folks um, in academic leadership. But again, that kind of larger picture um, in in moving away from the binary, just we need a lot more work in that area. Um, And we also recognize that right now it may be even more difficult for those populations to ascend to leadership given the anti-trans, anti-queer, anti-LGBT, um, you know, laws that are now in the books in, you know, a dozen states or so. And, and so um, we are seeing lots of incredible faculty and leader talent moving from place to place trying to find safety, frankly. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you mentioned the word safety, because yeah. I think that based on my colleagues' experience, I am wondering to what extent those of our colleagues feel safe enough in their day-to-day work to be able to even consider that, Yeah. right? Um, as And I think it's generational too. You know, last week I was at a conference about a week ago where there's a really preeminent Black woman leader who I happen to know is gay, but she's not out, right? Mm -hmm. She's significant leader. People, there are some who know that she's gay, but she is not out, right? My friend and colleague was out as a gay woman when I met her, and now they're out as a trans man, but it has been difficult. It has been difficult. So to see them thriving in a leadership position, a position of influence is so exciting where they're, you know, hiring, bringing people in, building a culture or building an organization, serving as a role model, right? And they told me recently, I don't know, there was a comment from a younger staff person made them feel old, they're 40, right? (laughs) But I thought about the difference in the ability to be out right? And and be facing all of these things as difficult as they are, but to at least be able to be out. Whereas this other leader that I mentioned, who I believe is probably around 70, is not out because it wasn't safe. It wasn't safe to be out. And by the time it was safe to be out, I don't think that they were comfortable with it. Their uh, spiritual life is important to them. They're involved with the church and so on. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. So I think there's significant research to be done, significant exploration around the whole topic of non-binary and trans folk 
in leadership in higher ed. I just don't think there's a lot out there quite yeah, yet. Not yet. Wow. Well, this has been a great conversation. So um, Lisa, I want to give you uh, a chance to tell us like, what is one big takeaway that you want us to know and make us go get all this, get this book? <laughs> well, I would say every person who reads this book will find something in it that resonates with their own life story, with their own work story, with their own personal story. As I mentioned, most of the women are first-generation students whose families champion them, whose mentors, men and women champion them, and whose example inspires the next generation of women leader, whether they're hetero or trans women leaders, will inspire readers to ascend to their own highest aspirations. And those aspirations may not be the C-suite, and that's fine, right? We're not, as I said, we're not all necessarily cut out, but I think the ability to have the freedom and the path and the steps that one could take, that one can take, if aspiration to the C-suite is important, uh, is it will definitely be answered in the reading of this book. And as I mentioned, the appendix of resources, each chapter has a section called What Can We Learn that summarizes the learnings from that particular mm-hmm. reader lots of interesting citations and stories. So I I encourage everyone to go buy the book. Yeah, yeah. The profiles that I had an opportunity to read were really lovely, inspiring. And again, I I mean, I've shared a lot of my own story here that they were, um, they really invoked my own kind of, and kind of like, yeah, totally relate to that. Right. Yes, (laughs) very relatable. Yeah, very relatable content, relatable content. (laughs) So yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a joy to have this conversation with you. Oh, my goodness, Lisa. It's been a privilege to be a a guest on your podcast and contribute to the important work, the DEIA work that you're doing in vet med. And now you have a new you have a new fan and you fan (laughs) of the podcast, but not only the podcast, but really about women in vet med. So I just delighted to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's been, it's been great. And it's also get, get just good to spend a little bit of time with you. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed it is. Okay. Have a great right. rest of your day. Thank you. So this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. To my guest, Lisa Takami, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and be sure to um, give us stars and likes wherever you find us. It helps people find us. Um, And uh, be sure to check out um, our next episode will be in about two weeks and I will be uh, interviewing my very dear friend and colleague, Dr. LaTanya Craig, who is my counterpart and chief diversity officer at the American Veterinary Medical Association. So you don't want to miss that. This is the first one of the, I think this will only be the second public conversation that we've actually had since she's been in that position and um, it's going to be a good time. So be sure to check it out. So um, until next time.